The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And with so many twists and turns in our lives and and sort of strange, because probably many of us have a lot more space and just, you know, just conditions at home where things are relatively unstructured, and then the uncertainty and vulnerability of the virus and strange things like our YouTube channel closing down on us and things like that just emerge. And tonight I'm going to be talking about intimacy and really understanding our practice as this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. And even as we're sort of settling in and waiting for people to, to join us, in this awkward situation of staring at a computer screen or staring at our phones or whatever you're looking at or just listening for those who are just doing the audio. This is just a, another moment of relating. We're in relationship, as awkward or strange, unusual as it might feel to us. This is our life. We're in relationship to our life. And the provocative, interesting thing is that this relating, the intimacy, the presence of struggling, the presence of tension, or the absence of struggle, the experience of freedom, all of this is happening right here in the heart, in the present moment. The mind, the present moment, the heart, this is where it all happens. It's so easy for us to project our problems out there on the person we're relating to, or the moment, the computer, the internet that we're relating to, the wild political scene that we're relating to, this crisis, that circumstance. But actually, the experience is here in the heart. It's always here in the heart. And in a way, this is only <laughs> the only thing we have to be responsible for. And this in no way separates us. You know, a lot of times, if we heard that, especially before doing our practice, in the years before practice, we might hear that as a way of, like, somebody justifying being disconnected, or justifying, like, I'm done with the world, I'm just in my own personal space. But where do we experience, where do we relate to the world, and where do we relate to others? That relationship, that those moments of relating, are experiences here in our heart. They're right here. And this is why we have this sort of strange experience in moments of real intimacy, of feeling profound intimacy, and a kind of spiritual loneliness because this is our existential position that we have failed to meet and deeply understand. It's really our teacher. And I don't know if anybody had a chance to read that article I sent out earlier this afternoon. Um, I actually sent out three articles by Susan Piver. And uh, I've really been appreciating her writing over the years um, some of these articles are quite old, more than 10 years old. Let me just find the one I'm interested in. It is... So this was in uh, Buddha Dharma, this uh, wonderful Buddhist journal from 2008. We're so close, it's lonely. And she just talks in this, if you haven't had a chance to read it, and it's linked in the email that was sent out this afternoon for all of you on the Buddhist Studies email list. And if you're not on that list, you can always, of course, um, contact the center. And we have these resources available on the Buddhist Studies webpage for anybody. But in this article, she's talking about a bad argument with her husband over something ultimately pretty silly or not that important. But it was intense nonetheless. Stormed out of the house, 
spent the night in her office, came home and they reconciled. She has a beautiful way of talking about that as she walked in early in the morning, husband walking out of the shower. She writes, although I was still angry, I could see that he no longer was. He came toward me and held up his palm, held his palms up to me like to hold it right there signs or possibly to, okay, okay, I give up signs. My palms spontaneously rose to mirror his, whether to stop him from coming closer or to hold him to me. I also couldn't tell. In that moment, I realized I was trapped. I couldn't push him away, nor could I hold him close enough. I couldn't keep him at bay because our lives are no longer two separate but parallel tracks as they were when we began living together. No, we were living one life together now. I don't know how or when this happened. And a little later she writes, I saw the depth of our connection and simultaneous inability for us to truly know each other. He must feel the same exact way, I thought, as I pulled him close, very lonely. And then I realized the closer we got, the more shocking and painful it would be to still not really know each other. And she goes on to talk about how what she was learning in her relationship with her partner was similar to her relationship with her spiritual teacher and her relationship to her spiritual practice, you know, probably two of the things that mattered most in her life. And this is, I think, practicing is all about, um, you know, especially practicing in relationship, really seeing the working ground of our spiritual practice is always in relationship to the present moment. Sometimes that present moment involves another human being or a group of human beings, or sometimes we're, we're the human being we're relating to. But we're getting to know this space of the heart where the relationship, where the relating is happening, being felt. It's right here. And however we try to grasp it, understand it, make meaning out of it, it will always involve a sense of separation. It will always be off in some existential or real way. And we'll feel apart, we'll feel separate. And this is the predicament we're in as we work in our practice, work with our lives. And somehow we have to sort of break through this is a poem I sent out in that email today, this afternoon. Again, maybe some of you have had a chance to read it, but it's worth hearing again. To Have Without Holding by Marge Percy. Learning to love differently is hard. Love with the hands wide open. Love with the doors banging on their hinges. The cupboard unlocked, the wind roaring and whimpering in the rooms. Rustling the sheets and snapping the blinds that thwack like rubber bands in, a, in an open palm. It hurts to love wide open, stretching the muscles that feel as if they are made of wet plaster, then of blunt knives, then of sharp knives. It hurts to thwart the reflexes of grab and clutch, to love and to let go again and again. It pesters to remember the lover who is not in the bed, to hold back what is owed to the work that gutters like a candle in a cave without air, to love consciously, conscientiously, concretely, and constructively. I can't do it, you say, it's killing me, but you thrive, you glow on the street like a neon raspberry, you float and sail like a, you float and sail, a helium balloon, bright bachelor's button blue, and bobbing on the cold and hot winds of our breath as we make and unmake and passionate disallay and sisillay the rhythm of our unbound bonding to have and not to hold to love with minimized malice hunger and anger moment by moment 
balanced. And what I really love about this poem is it the intimacy that the poet is describing really involves exposure, exposure to hate, exposure to passion, to wanting, to the real human emotions that are here, conditioned in our mind and heart. It's the only place, of course, where we can be in relationship, right? Everything else is idealistic. And all those sort of idealistic ideas we have, you know, it always involves some kind of deal with the devil, this removal, this separation, right? Where we cling to the idea of what the good relationship would be, what our relationship is, or what we want it to be, what we imagine it to be. And so we distance ourselves from the only reality we have, which is wild and has this sort of paradoxical feeling of being real and wild and alive. We feel enlivened and it can never be mine. So the sense of self always feels like a awkward visitor, doesn't belong. And as long as, you know, until we're fully awake, to some degree we're identified with that habit of selfing. But we're having a more honest sense of the self as like not belonging, feeling alone. Because it's a construction, it isn't life. <laughs> it's something that was construct, constructed by a thinking mind, a you know, conceiving mind. And it's so it has a static in a sense, unnatural, not in the ultimate sense unnatural, but sort of a static, not living, uh, felt sense. And when the mind, attention, awareness, identifies with that construction of me who's in the relationship, well, of course it's going to feel dead. Like the Buddha says in that famous, well-known passage from the Dhammapada, this wonderful collection of uh, verses from the early tradition, the early Buddhist tradition. And I think I mentioned this recently because we talked about that word vigilance. Um, so the path is, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, those who are vigilant experience the deathless, experience awakening and freedom. Those who are negligent are as if already dead. So in that experience with our partners, with our pets, with our friends, especially in meaningful relationships, when we're having, um, you know, like in this case with Susan Piver in her article, this argument with her partner, an intense one, and then the reconciliation, the coming together in a real meeting, a really, you know, probably in the great scheme of their relationship, an impactful moment a moment that leaves an impression, beautiful moment in a way, that healing of reconciliation, seeing the silliness of the argument, feeling, sensing the depth that she described as realizing that they had a shared life. And yet the sense of self stands apart. So both the intimacy and the awkwardness, the sense of self not really belonging but still showing up because that's a honest that's a honest picture honest taste of our life there is something off right in uh, most of you know we call that in early buddhist uh, instructions we call that dukkha dukkha is like a wheel that's out of true so it doesn't roll very well <laughs> it always is bumpy and awkward and not really working. And this is this, we should honestly feel this in our relationships. How many times in moments of friends, you know, when we're not lost in the laughter and the verbal play with our buddies, friends, lovers, you know, and then we have just a moment. That's why uh, wisdom awareness, mindful awareness can be a sort of... Uh, party killer <laughs> when you're with a friend or friends or with a lover 
and then you have a moment of awareness because what are we going to, what is that balance, wisdom, awareness going to reveal in that moment? It's going to reveal the seeds, the momentum of that alienated, separate, static idea of a me. Who, that me, that constructed me is always going to be in need of life because it's a construction. It's not actually alive. It's just an idea. So it always feels dead, just like the Buddha says, the negligent are as if already dead. Because when we're negligent, when we're not really seeing clearly, then the mind, because of habit, is going to identify with the construction of a me who's in relationship with this other person, instead of the living relating, the living immediacy of experiencing, and the emptiness of the subject, the knowing. The knowing is there, the, there's experience being known, but there's nothing, no one standing apart from the living, from the relating. And so that's what we're learning to do. We're learning to feel the awkwardness we have when we're in relationships, how we always feel apart. There's that famous passage, I think Wynne and I had it in our wedding ceremony from Gahil Gibran, uh, where he uses the image of two trees standing together but apart. And I forget exactly how the passage goes, but the point I'm remembering is it's important to understand that we're standing here together and that we're apart, we're separate. Because again, that's, that's a way of being honest with our existential, unawakened situation. Because it's coming, coming to terms, we're using, we're actually using relationships, all of them, we're using them to reveal what we haven't seen, what we're unaware of. We need life, we need birth, we need the complexity of our social situations, the complexity of having a body, of being a sexual being, of having to find a way to feed ourselves and care for those who we love and be part of this wild world, we need this complexity to mirror back the only thing that's off, right? And of course, we're always obsessed with fixing our partners and getting away from the friends or the people we interrelate with who bother us and seeking the perfect group of friends and the perfect group of colleagues at work. And then and only then will things be just right but it's never just right. I think I mentioned earlier this passage from uh, the suttas from the Middle Link Discourses, uh, Middle Link Discourse number 87, from the one who is dear, is one way the title gets translated. But in this, um, there is a situation where a father recently lost his only son and sort of basically lost his mind and kept going to the cemetery and crying out, where have you gone, my only little child? Where have you gone, my only little child? And eventually he found the Buddha and the Buddha said to him, householder, your faculties are not those of one who is steady in their own mind. In other words, you seem to be distraught. You seem to have lost your balance. And the person said, well, of course, you know, I lost my only child and it's not okay, you know, in so many words. And then the Buddha gave him this pretty blunt teaching. He said, that's the way it is, householder. That's the way it is for sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are born from one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear. Now this is a pretty blunt teaching to someone who's just lost a child. But what he wants, what I'm sensing, he wants to help that person uh, uh, see is this fixed idea that 
this shouldn't happen. That I had this beautiful relationship with my son and I should have been able to depend on that as a source. Like this is what we often, our normal ordinary relationship or idea we have about relationships is that if I line him up right, if I cultivate the right kind of relationships, I get them just right, then they're going to provide me some real safety and security. And then I'm going to feel safe and secure. And finally I'll put down the load of insecurity and anxiety because I've got this network of friends and lovers and family and whatever. And I've worked hard, but I've collected the right collection of relationships and now I'm safe. And that's what we call a fixed view, right? It's an idea that the mind clings to because it imagines that through the clinging, the holding to that idea that this relationship is going to make me happy, make me safe, that we imagine we're getting some safety because at least I think I know where safety is. And when, you know, as this discourse goes on, uh, the person leaves the Buddha because like he didn't like what the Buddha told him and he started telling other people what the Buddha had said and the word got around and eventually the king hears it and and was a little bit, this is uh, King Pasanadi. Um, he's a famous character at the time of the Buddha and his, the queen, his wife, was uh, a student of the Buddha and uh, so he he said, uh, you know, basically what had been passed down, that those who are dear, right, distress and pain and despair are born from having dear ones in your life. And uh, the queen said, well, if that's what the Buddha said, then that's what's true, because he doesn't lie. And that really upset the king, like, oh, you always go with your teacher, you always think he knows, and asked, and just sort of sent her away, like, get out of here. And um, so the king was frustrated, but the queen wanted to help, so he sent, she sent one of her advisors to go see the Buddha to confirm that that's what he said, that those who are dear in our lives cause us distress. Those who were attached to the love, the quality of the relationship, we're dependent on it. We're trying to feed on that relationship. We're trying to get safety from relationship. And uh, of course the person found the Buddha, heard the Buddha confirm that that's what he said. And the Buddha gave some more examples. He said, well, you know, imagine a mother loses a child, a father loses a child. A person loses a parent, a sibling loses another sibling, on and on like that, wouldn't that be in fact the case? That there would be despair and pain and distress because of being connected to someone dear. And then the queen hears this, goes to the husband, he finally gets it. Now it's not, the Buddha's not saying that we shouldn't have dear ones. He's really trying to illuminate this tendency in our mind to think that dear ones exist so that we can feel safe. So this is the deal we make, like a wise person when they fall in love or decide to, you know, whether they decide or not, fall into friendship with another person, befriend another person, make a commitment to be there, to be in relationship. You know, a wise person is doing that because it's the natural and beautiful thing to do. We enter into relationships as a kind of generous movement of our lives. To not enter into a relationship would be stingy. So when the conditions are right, there's enough you know, suitable conditions to enter in to some kind of relationship appropriate for you know, the time and place. That's a generous movement. Just like when we feed our body, that can be seen as a generous activity or we put ourselves to sleep at night or shovel the walk or do whatever we do in life can be a generous and compassionate engagement with the moment. 
So developing dear ones should be a very natural thing that would happen to us. Thinking dear ones are going to make us safe, the Buddha is saying that's a fixed view arising out of ignorance, arising from a perspective of a self, the static sense of a me, feeling appropriately empty because it's just the construction of the mind, wanting to do something about that yucky feeling of being a static construction of the mind, seek some excitement. And this is a, you know, as we explore this week and next week, our last class, we'll have small groups and we'll continue to share with each other our experiences where we feel like in moments during our day, we're in a more authentic way of relating to others, a single person, a group of people, even in relationship to ourselves in a very enlivened, free way, right? Moments of real freedom in relationship, as well as recognizing moments of real suffering, tightness in relationship. And we're going to notice that, like one way to contrast that marriage of intimacy and non-grasping is this addiction to intensity. Because a lot of what drives us in life, because we're identified with a sense of a me that turns out to be a static construction that feels lonely, <laughs> existentially, deeply lonely and apart because it's just the construction of a mind. It, it isn't a living, interdependent, alive, natural thing. It's a, a cognitive construction of a mark who wants to be loved, who wants to belong, who wants to contribute, who wants to be seen, right? But that idea is always going to have a particular flavor. And so to feel, because it feels so flat and numb and alone, we wrongly get attracted to intense things, intense relationships, like how much drama around falling in love. Not probably just here in the West, but I'm guessing in most cultures that, not maybe all cultures, but a lot of the cultures through history have made a big deal of love, that kind of romantic love. Or other kinds of, you know, dramas that we have in relationship. Make a big deal about sexual intimacy. Make a big deal about having power over, dominating others. Or make a big deal out of following and supporting. But we, we have these stories and the kind of intoxication and intensity that can come from, you know, um, imagining something and then somehow willing or hoping that the external conditions will line up well enough with our story and then we'll have that charge of like we got something, we got there. And same thing though, we have the same but opposite charge like when we don't get there, we don't, the external conditions don't match up with the story we have about me, about my relationships. And then we have that grief and that betrayal. But this intensity, it gives, the, gives our life the semblance of energy. And it's just enough juice to propel or reinforce the idea that I'm alive, even though I'm imagining I'm this thing apart. So this practice of cultivating wholesome relationships we've been doing these last weeks, it's really central to awakening. It's not some secondary practice in the Buddhist tradition. It's really the ground of awakening relationships, not something apart. Because it's, uh, it's in these social situations where I find it can be very clear the sense of engagement, and yet we're still dragging. So here we are, we're relating to others, like especially in our more wholesome moments when we're hanging out in a situation, a social situation that has some safety to it. So here we are, and yet there is that deadness, that loneliness, that 
feeling of being apart, you know, and that's that should really um, energize wisdom. What's going on here? What am I not seeing? Because if we don't get curious from this place of humility, like I'm not going to project that, I'm not going to pretend I know what's going on, because then we're generally going to, you know, this person, this person, these people aren't really meeting my needs. We're going to imagine the problem is out there. That's what I really liked about that article that I read from earlier tonight, Susan Piver's article, where she, she got that in that beautiful moment of reconciling with her partner and feeling really close, just catching that, like wanting to be true to the sense of being apart, you know, you're bad, I'm good, or whatever the, the argument was about, but also feeling the deep need to want to connect. Both are self-views. But the fact that she can write about it, right, that's that space of wisdom that's beginning to see the existential situation. And here's the key, without judgment, without being afraid of its non-resolution. Because if we're in a hurry to resolve it, we're right back in the same game of, of like looking for intensity. Because the intensity of, I'm this lonely, existentially separate being, so I'm totally dependent on some sort of savior, whether it's a romantic partner or some social situation where I really feel like I can contribute and I feel like I belong, so I'm getting a lot of that social juice from this interaction, or even spiritually, like some god or some teacher is going to take me in and hold me and make me feel like I belong. We get really dependent on something external to resolve the existential uneasiness. In our early Buddhist practice, we're really learning to hold that space. Even at the same time, we gotta, on a practical level, have continue the conversation. We can't look weird like we're in some meditative space when we're at work or when we're in conversation having dinner with a friend. So we have to use the ordinariness of our social situations to reveal something. And then what will happen when we can really be there feeling that aloneness, that separation, and the awkwardness of it, and completely doing what needs to be done, playing the game, in, conver in the conversation, engaged, then what will happen is the mind will, the attention, right, with wisdom, it will realize something. The more space, the space that's not judging, it's not afraid of what it feels like, not afraid of the awkwardness of seeing. Like it's a little bit we don't want to even see the social space. It almost feels like self-consciousness would be inappropriate. Like, oh, I'm living my life, but I really shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be observing. I mean, that's a little weird. Like having a life but somehow thinking we shouldn't be aware, <laughs> right? So now we're illuminating over time, we're able to illuminate it. And what happens naturally, because it isn't a personal move, is just the allegiance shifts from being in allegiance, being identified with that lonely, constructed sense of a me that stands apart, that so much wants to belong, so much kind of an not so good emptiness that wants to be filled, identified with the loneliness to the allegiance switches or uh, uh, changes and the heart opens with just the free, effortless activity of being, of being in relationship, of nature being nature. And so the personality has, so there are moments of experiencing, right, the personality in relationship with everything else. 
everything in relationship with everything without any friction. And we call that a moment of experiencing some freedom. And of course, the thinking mind isn't going to understand that experience. It will always be surprising because the moment before, there was a very predictable psychic weight that's almost always been there. And all of a sudden, when that switch of allegiance, there we were in this conversation with our friend, or there we were hanging out with our partner, or playing with our dog, or doing our thing at work, and all of a sudden there was no psychic weight. It was just lightness and freedom, and you could call it love, uh, but, a, but a very general, open kind of love, not specific to any relationship, just a whole or full warmth of the heart, without anybody trying to be kind, without it being any kind of personal strategy or agenda. And the only takeaway when the thinking mind reemerges and tries to make sense of it is that felt right, that felt good. This is what the heart's been looking for. This feels like, right, so the mind, the thinking mind, the deluded mind in a sense, has a little bit more clarity about aspiration. I want that freedom all the time. I'm interested in living this life with a heart that is completely unburdened as I experience in those few moments. And that one situation when the mind switched its allegiance from that chronic addicted identification with the lonely self. And from that lonely self identification, I so much need relationship. There was a really poignant article um, where Thich Nhat Hanh is talking to somebody who got divorced and is trying to have a relationship with his son who's being raised by his ex-wife. And he, you know, as these stories often go, he's remarried and uh, difficult breakup with his ex-wife. And the son says to him that he doesn't want to be with his dad, doesn't want to spend time with him. And the dad is asking advice from Thich Nhat Hanh. Many of you know he's a wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk, quite old now, um, probably near the end of his life, now living in Vietnam, but taught for many decades here in the West. Really impactful, wonderful teacher. And asked Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, if he has any advice. And the first thing, Thich Nhat Hanh was pretty blunt. When the father said that his son doesn't want to see him, he said, it means your pre that your practice is not good enough. You are not loving enough. You are not fresh enough. And he goes on talking a little later, he says, if you generate the energy of freshness, loving kindness and understanding, your son will find you attract very attractive. He will be attracted to you and nothing can prevent him from feeling this way. And I think part of what he's pointing to here is to remove, because any greed or aversion, like any needing dependence on the son loving me, coming back into relationship with me, that is really coming from that idea of a me who needs this relationship. But when the heart is coming from that place of generosity, that place of fearless participation, that it's in a way we'd say that the life is being fed, it's feeding on that full engagement, not feeding on some idea of somebody who needs something in the relationship. Now I know that's a tall order because, you know, on a practical level, we're often in this more business-like relationship or this business-like um, understanding in terms of our relationship, like, okay, whether we do it in a sort of obvious way or, or in an underhanded way, we're negotiating, like, okay, I'll be this way for you if you're this way for me, and we'll call it even, 
and we'll call that a good relationship. And we do that even in our most important relationships. Um, and this is why humility is a really important ingredient, because as long as we think we know what the way of relating or how the relationship should be, we're probably still in allegiance with the lonely, fixed, constructed sense of a me. That me will always feel like it needs something, because it isn't really life. It's that as if already dead. Because that's what concepts or mental constructions are. They're, they're not living, breathing, natural things. They're these constructions that have the appearance of being somebody. So a little later, you know, the, um, the practitioner says to Ty, I really tried all that. I tried to improve myself and do those things. And then Ty doesn't give up. He goes, Thich Nhat Hanh, he's sometimes uh, in a friendly way called Ty. Um, but his response to the man was, I don't doubt that. I do not doubt your goodwill. But goodwill is one thing, and the capacity of doing it is another thing. The goodwill to reconcile to love is there. I don't doubt it. But how to become capable of reconciling, of loving, that is another matter. Sometimes we intend to love, but the more we love, the more we make other, the other person suffer. That happens everywhere. So the willingness to love and to, and to reconcile is not a love, is not enough. The capacity of loving and reconciling, that is what we truly need. So your quality of being, the quality of love, of understanding in you, should become something that your son really needs. Then even if you don't make any effort to bring him to you, he will come to you. And that is the basic practice. So that's sort of, a, I think, a very powerful teaching. Of course, it's, it will probably sound a little bit like, what? What's he really pointing to there? And it's, you know, there's so much in this, these teachings of the Buddha that are a little bit the chicken and egg, like what comes first. Like, but the resolution, the reconciliation of the problems that appear to us in our lives, the reconciliation, the resolution of suffering is freedom. And so that the resolution of the problem the father has with his son is to be really fresh, really free, to be love, instead of to try to love his son, right? To just be love, that generous presence that isn't looking. Now, to get to that place, it means we have to relate to our own neediness in that generous way. So, you could hear that and then immediately we might think, okay, I hate the fact that I'm needy. You know, we might think of a particular relationship like at work where we might feel that we're not getting recognized in the way we want to get recognized or anywhere. And uh, so then that's our practice. So instead of working, like in this example, with our son, we just start working with our own feelings of not being seen. And can I meet that, be in relationship with my own woundedness, with my own social pain, with my own awkwardness, with my own humiliation or shame or whatever it might be, my own sort of endless need to be appreciated and constantly needing more and more. Like even when I experience some success, then I need some more. I need to be reminded that I'm loved. I need to be, you know, it needs to be proved that I have worth. I need to see it concretely. So we start to see that hunger, to see the loneliness, to see the hunger, to see the desperation, to see the giving up. So whatever the particular flavor of that static, lonely sense of self might, whatever they kind of habit energy of that 
lonely guy, lonely person might be, we need to meet it in a generous way. Honey, I see you. I feel you. I'm not afraid of you. And this is a radical shift because often when we touch into that deeper pain, we might it might appear that we have some self-compassion, but it may not come with the deep enough wisdom. And I think that's really what Thich Nhat Hanh was saying to this man. Yeah, I, I, I don't believe you. You're trying to love your son. But when he says, when Thich Nhat Hanh says you're not fresh enough, I think he's really talking about that the man was trusting a superficial, he, he wasn't actually willing or interested in unpacking what was going on in his heart. And when we unpack, we realize that there is this tender woundedness. But the interesting thing is the awareness, the space of wisdom, the space of love that recognizes our own social woundedness, our own social neediness, loneliness, hunger for recognition, the wisdom and love that sees it, that can honestly see it and feel it and not be afraid of it, that is not lonely. That is not needy. And see, that's what really allows for that shift in allegiance. It's exactly by coming into relationship with our own social pain. And what more than being in relationship in, the, in life in all our little and big ways, at work, at home, with our families, to reveal that sense of a me that has social needs. So we can get interested in it from a place of humility, not from a place of being certain, oh, I had this kind of upbringing, my heart's been broken or abused in these kinds of ways, and therefore that me, which is really me, has these actual wounds that need to be fixed. Now, I'm not saying therapeutically that there isn't work to be done to take care of the wounded stories. Let me just refer to that static me, that construction, as a, a series of familiar repeated stories, always with little riffs. They're not exactly the same story, but they're familiar stories that the heart, mind repeats. And the repetition is what we take to be me. It's a, it's a kind of a natural vortex of repeating stories. And some of our repeating stories are more toxic than others. Some of us, you know, have done some good therapeutic work and have relatively healthy stories repeating. Others, because of trauma, because of abuse, because of difficult life circumstances, have relatively heavy, difficult stories that are repeating in our hearts and minds. And it's a miserable or more miserable life. And that seems to be how it is for all of us a bunch of repeating stories. And then we, with some wisdom, with some teachings, we're willing to start looking to being in relationship and feeling what comes up when we're in relationship. As I mentioned last week, you know, being celibate and not in relationship in my 20s and early 30s for seven or eight years, you know, and then coming into relationship I just saw so much conditioning of that sense of me and the neediness and all the sort of ideas that felt like they needed to be met or the stories had to line up with reality, reality had to line up with the stories and the incongruence was always cause for fear and a cause for stressful activity to fix my partner or to fix my life or to give up on life or, you know, any movement that none of which works, of course. It just adds more layers of stress. And fortunately over the years, just more, a little bit more space, really recognizing and being able to meet in little and bigger ways 
that sense of loneliness, that sense of betrayal, that sense of resentment, that sense of rage, whatever we find there as we begin to have a more honest, intimate, fearless, non-judgmental relationship with our woundedness. And then, you know, it's that work that then allows us to have more natural, light, beautiful interactions. And it's not like a relationship then is forever changed. It might be, you know, like with our partner, it might be relating in ways that are really like off or toxic or um, not helpful. And then moments of real freedom. The question is, are we moving in our relationships, all of them, are we moving from more moments of toxicity, more moments of relating in ways that plant seeds of suffering for myself and others, to moments where there's less suffering? That's the real question. So a couple of things to keep in mind this week, um, partly in preparation for the small groups next week, but just uh, having uh, some interest around intensity in relationships, like the charge of trying to convince somebody, like when you're having a discussion and wanting to be right, wanting that person. So that might be kind of that, like the underlying need might be for power. Like I need that person to acknowledge that I'm right here, that I'm good, I'm respected. So, but notice the intensity. And, and then when you're aware of the intensity, you can ask the question, who needs, who's feeding, what's feeding on this intensity? Is there anybody? And that might open up where wisdom awareness, compassion and wisdom can actually have a momentary sense of that inner loneliness that masks, masquerades as self, as me, back there. Oh, oh, there's that sense of a lonely guy back there, a needy guy back there, angry guy back there, rageful guy back there, hungry ghost back there. Okay, okay. What's that feel like? Do I need to self, like do I need to have a self story around it? Or can I just see it as a, a momentary arising of nature? Oh yeah, sometimes it's like that, like that. And it might be that initially, a little glimpse like that might be the scariest thing you've ever seen in your practice, in your life. But that's how it is. And the, just because it looks like something you don't want to see, doesn't mean it's actually dangerous to get to know it and to learn to relax with it. So that intensity and then that instead of valuing the habit we have around that intensity, that ch social charge that we feel could be around somebody we're attracted to and wanting to be seen or thinking that this is too much, like the charge is this social interaction is too much, it's not okay. And then believing that, oh, I have to withdraw. So now I'm not saying you don't withdraw, I'm just saying that in the moment before you withdraw, take that moment where you feel the charge and see who or what is related to that charge so that you can have a little window. Because it's only when we're intimate and fearless with our own woundedness that our relationships in this kind of practical arena of our lives with our families and friends, where freedom starts to show up more and more. Because what's in the way of more free, more wholesome, more creative and beautiful and, and healing relationships is we don't understand how we're relating. Through what are we relating? We feel, you know, we're just unconscious, our relationships are unconsciously 
funneled through these old constructions that are repeating stories. So just end with this uh, passage that I'll send out next week. Thanks to Carolyn who sent that in. Um, beautiful passage from Mark Nepo, wonderful poet and writer. I recommend his work. He writes, We waste so much energy trying to cover up who we are when beneath every attitude is the want to be loved and beneath every anger is a wound to be healed and beneath every sadness is the fear that there will be not enough time. When we hesitate in being direct, we unknowingly slip something on, some added layer of protection that keeps us from feeling the world. And often that thin covering is the beginning of a loneliness which, if not put down, diminishes our chances of joy. It's like wearing gloves every time we touch something and then forgetting we chose to put them on. We complain that nothing feels quite real. Our challenge each day is, is not to get dressed to face the world, but to unglove ourselves so that the doorknob feels cold and the car handle feels wet and the kiss goodbye feels like the lips of another being soft and unrepeatable. So that's a nice image for us for this last week of practice to move into our relationships, into our moments of relating, even tonight, you know, being home alone or being home with the folks and other beings that you live with. But just to think to imagine ungloving, like what would it be? So not relying on stances, not relying on stories. And, and I think it's really important to own that we don't know how to do this. Because if we think we know how to do this, we're coming out of some frame that's probably tied into that lonely, constructed sense of self. So the thing to trust is more the humility that, and this is where equanimity is really useful because you know what equanimity as a quality of love is this beautiful, intimate balance, presence, when we don't know what the hell's going on <laughs> and we don't even know who we are and we don't know what we should say or do or not do. And so we're kind of allowing our life to come out of the moment and then we'll just see. We'll see what happens next. We'll see what the impulses are there, what impulses are there. And when the impulses seem to be defined, seem to be predictable, we just want to feel that it's related to that allegiance with the old stories. Well, that's enough. We don't have to try to stop being that person. We just want to feel the dead weight of it as if already dead. Because that's enough to sort of let that wound, let that old, that weight be what it is and to meet it with compassion. Because then it allows, allows our engagement with the moment to come from a different place. So good luck with the practice this week. Thanks for hanging in there with all our technical difficulties. Hopefully it's a one-time happening, we'll see. And then remember next week for the last 25 minutes or so, we'll break off into small groups like we've had. I just encourage more of you to join in those small groups. Don't be shy. Really appreciate Gabe Keller Flores, who's been managing those small groups and all the technical support from Scott Jensen, Common Grounds IT consultant, really great. Uh, Scott's been sort of handling our technology for probably 15 years now, maybe even a little bit longer. And of course, many other live stream and Zoom programs you can check in with. Just go to Common Ground Meditation Center's website, of course, and you'll see in our public calendar both the Zoom programs and all the live stream. Shelley Graff, our program 
coordinator and um, associate director. She's been, um, they've been adding new programs. So we're going to be having self-compassion and loving kindness programs every Friday night. That's new. I think Myra Rucker is now doing a Monday yoga class. That's relatively new. And uh, Shelly is also starting another program on Tuesday nights with some of her cohorts that are in the four-year teacher training at IMS, Insight Meditation Society, some wonderful budding great Dharma teachers that I've had the good fortune to get to know some of them. They're going to be doing some, um, I forget what it's called, but uh, oh, it's a clever title. <laughs> anyway, that would be Tuesday nights. You can look at the calendar and find that. Anyway, wishing everybody safety and ease and hope to see you next Monday night. Take care, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.